This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. This episode is sponsored by Newcom, and as many of you know, I only bring sponsors onto this show whose products I truly swear by. Now, we are an overworked and underslept population, especially those of us that wear uniform for a living. And trying to reclaim some of the lost rest and recovery is imperative. Now, the application of this product is as simple as putting on headphones and a sleep mask. As you listen to music on each of the programs, there is neuroacoustic software beneath that is tapping into the actual frequencies of your brain whether to upregulate your nervous system or downregulate. Now, for most of us that come off shift, we are A, exhausted, and B, do not want to bring what we've had to see and do back home to our loved ones. So one powerful application is using the program PowerNap, a 20-minute session that will not only feel like you've had two hours of sleep, but also downregulate from a hypervigilant state back into the role of mother or father, husband or wife. Now, there are so many other applications and benefits from this software, so I urge you to go and listen to episode 806 with CEO Jim Poole. Then download Newcom, N-U-C-A-L-M, from your app store and sign up for the seven-day free trial. Not only will you have an understanding of the origin story and the four decades this science has spanned, but also see for yourself the incredible health impact of this life-changing software. And you can find even more information on newcom.com. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show high school teacher and UFC fighter Cody Gibson. Now, in this conversation, we discuss a host of topics from Cody's journey into wrestling his MMA career, the world of teaching, the importance of physical education, overcoming the loss of his first UFC contract, entering the fighter house through the Ultimate Fighter show, 
the importance of mentorship, and so much more. Now, before we get to this amazing conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment. Go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 850 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Cody Gibson. Enjoy. Cody, I want to start by saying two things. Firstly, thank you to our mutual friend, Matt Garrett, for connecting us. And secondly, for taking time out of your busy girl dad schedule and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, his his son is in my, my goes to my school. So I've known him for a couple of years now. So it's uh, I'm always getting on to him and tell him I'm going to tell his dad. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's funny the way that we even came together because I watched you on the most recent Ultimate Fighter, which I haven't actually watched for a long time. Avid, avid fight fan, but um, you know, it's it's a lot of footage, a lot of time, and I really got pulled into that one. Then Matt reached out and said that you guys knew each other, and then after we'd scheduled, my son, who's um, big into the kind of the positive stuff on social media, which is thank you know brilliant thank god he's actually got into that side and he's like dad there's this guy who's a ufc fighter and he's also a teacher and you should get him on the show and i was like he is coming on the show so so here we are so you've had it from multiple people you know advising me to get you on here i appreciate it thanks for having me on uh just kind of followed along when i when i found out about you and started researching the show a little bit it's a pretty powerful stuff you guys have done so happy to be here Beautiful. Well, very first question then, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Uh, I'm in my very messy garage that is uh, a project that keeps getting paused. Um, but I'm in uh, Templeton, California. It's a small little town, um, central coast. Uh, it's like an old west town. It used to be a railroad uh, kind of stopping place for the railroad. And so we still got an old uh, mill and, uh, you know, like... It, it, it reminds me of like an old west town where the streets are you know wood with overhead and you know it's that kind of that kind of vibe only about seven thousand people here so it's uh blue collar kind of but then all the all the wineries around us kind of brings in uh, a different crowd so it's an interesting place is it is it both of those kind of existing simultaneously because if i think of somewhere like austin it's texas you know on one side it's very kind of um ex-military one would argue maybe slight right leaning and then you have this other parallel hipster um you know tech group that's also in there as well yeah i would probably something i mean obviously not as big as austin but it has that kind of dynamics where you've got this kind of affluent wine culture community um and then you've got a lot of if you go to the templeton market at noon any day of the week there's a line out the door of guys in steel-toed boots and dirt on their hands, and uh, they're there to get their sandwiches and uh, chicken chicken fingers and stuff like that. So, 
<laughs> well, let's start at the very beginning of your background. So I know there's, there's there's some interesting chapters in your early life. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, how many siblings. So I was born in uh, Blackwell, Oklahoma, a little town, uh, and I lived in a town called Ardmore, Oklahoma. Um, and my mo- my mother uh, was 16 when she had me um, and 15 when she had my brother. Uh, my, I have older brothers a year older than me. Um, and she was, you know, a drug addict and uh, had had a, had a very hard life of abuse herself. Um, and so it's kind of just like that cycle, you know, um, unfortunately. Um, and so we were put into foster care um, pretty much as, as soon as I was born. I think Keith spent some time with her, um, but I, I don't think I spent very much time with her. I was pretty much in foster care and uh, spent a couple of years in foster care and uh, ended up getting adopted and moving to California. Um, my father, my adopted father, um, he has family in Oklahoma. Um, and we would, we were living with a foster mother who, uh, was an elderly lady and she would go to this hearing aid business place. It was like an at home, it was like an in-home business, you know, like it was someone's home, but they ran, they operated a hearing aid business out of it. And, uh, so we, we were, you know, we're two and three years old and we'd sit in the lobby or I guess the living room, uh, whenever she was getting her ears, her ears looked at. And, um, she, the person who owned that was the aunt and uncle of my adopted father in California. And my adopted parents had been trying to have kids for 10, 12 years since they were married, essentially. Um, and now they were in their thirties and, um, had, you know, they got married at 19 and now they're in their thirties, 10, 12 years have passed. They can't have children. It's never happening for them. And, uh, so yeah, they were kind of looking into adoption a little bit. And, um, my father's aunt who ran the hearing aid business knew we were up for adoption. And so in 1989 adoption was a a very different process than it is in 2023. I think, uh, in some ways it's, it's not as good anymore. It's a lot, a lot harder to adopt today than it was then. Um, and so a social worker flew out to California and, ran down the checklist with my adopted parents and uh a week later we were on a plane and and heading to california and so uh yeah we were adopted and and my my adopted parents uh you know they ended up having two children after we were adopted um a few months after they adopted us they got pregnant and uh josh was a premature baby he was my, my little brother he's three years younger than me um yeah, but he was born in six months as opposed to nine and back in 1990, when he was born, uh, he was spent a, a large majority of his early life in an incubator, um, cooking still. And uh, and he's he's doing great now. He has cerebral palsy. Uh, that's been his disability, but his mental mentally, he's you know he's got his master's degree. He's married with a kid and living life and and doing great things. And then a few years after Josh, uh, my parents got pregnant again. And Jacob was born, and he the pregnancy actually went well. Um, but w- during childbirth, uh, he got wrapped around the umbilical cord and lost, uh, you know, oxygen to his brain. And uh, he's severely mentally and physically handicapped. Um, he's 
he turns 30 years old this year. And uh, when he was born, the doctors said he only probably would live a few years at most. Uh, my parents have really done a phenomenal job with his health and, and under, you know, trying to navigate that. Uh, when, when you have a, a child with a the disabilities that aren't, um, they're not, there's not like a blueprint for how you care for that child and keep them functioning and healthy because, um, it's a unique, you know, disabilities. And, um, so they've done a phenomenal job and, uh, he's still, he's still with us and still doing well. And, uh, his health has definitely deteriorated over the years, but he's still happy. Um, um, and he has a great nurse who's with him six days a week, uh, which helps my parents a lot. And, uh, yeah, so that's kind of my backstory. And it was definitely, uh, an interesting childhood growing up in, in a house with, you know, me and my brother were adopted, which really isn't too much different than, you know, normal life for normal people. But, uh, and then having two brothers with special needs and trying to navigate that as a family, um, you know, little things like taking family vacations were very different and, and more challenging in a lot of ways. Um, and, but I, I really attribute, like, I always felt like I had a sense of empathy for people. Uh, and I think I, I attribute that, that I have to, uh, to just having brothers with special needs and kind of seeing uh, a different world and growing up in a different world. My parents both run nonprofit organizations too. So growing up in, you know, nonprofit stuff, doing a lot of volunteer work with their organizations. Um, yeah, I think it just made for a unique kind of childhood. Um, the one I'm, you know, I'm grateful for. I'm obviously a little bit older than you based on the color of my hair and my wrinkles. But um, when I was young, the way that special needs communities were received, the way that the adaptive communities that were received was very, very different. Not that it was bad so much as I think they were just hidden a lot more. They were kind of pushed into the shadows. And even as a firefighter paramedic, I've found facilities you know, that I've worked at or responded to where that's still somewhat the case. But with, I mean, sadly, probably 9-11 and all our veterans that came back from overseas, there's been a real kind of paradigm shift in the way that that community is viewed, the way um, some of the members of that community have done incredible things, whether it's, you know, powerlifters with cerebral palsy or I had one guy, um, uh, Chris Nickich, who is a Ironman triathlete with Down syndrome. I mean, just phenomenal, phenomenal human beings. Have you seen, you know, being actually within a family with two members of, you know, with with physical and mental challenges? Have you seen that even in the the adult span that you've had so far? Yeah, you know, and we were always, um, you know, Jacob was, you know, obviously very limited in what he was able to do or not do. But but Josh, we were always uh, very, very much like you're going to be like every other kid on the playground. You're going to play the sports. You're going to do all these things. And if we have to make adjustments for how we do them, we'll make adjustments. But um, he wrestled all four years in high school um, and he only weighed about like 90 pounds. Uh, so he, the lightest weight class was 103 pounds. So he was always a little bit undersized, even for the lightest weight class. Uh, and he would just drop to his knees as soon as the match started and um, wrestle from his knees. And, you know, he lost a lot, um, but he had one match his senior year on varsity uh, that he had a really good cradle. 
Like if he got a cradle, he had a good grip strength and he could pin someone with a cradle. Um, and so one match he was losing like he normally was. And uh, he, he, he was able to, I think he chose top the third round and uh, he locked on that cradle and, and pinned the kid. Um, and so that, those type of moments are the ones that stick out to me that, you know, and yes, uh, to kind of answer your question, like the special needs community has a lot of amazing individuals and people um, that do amazing things. And uh, just, you know, I remember as a kid, I used to do the special Olympics with my brother, Jacob, and uh, he was in a wheelchair. So the, the way they do races for wheelchairs is they have a runner, someone who's behind the wheelchair helping them. Um, Cause they're not like the, the kind where they can push them themselves. You know, they're, a bigger, heavier duty wheelchairs. And, uh, I was, I remember we won the special Olympics because I was, I was competitive and Jake didn't mind going fast. So, uh, yeah, we, uh, we won a couple of events doing that too. So, um, there's, there's just so many good people in the community of special needs and disabilities and people have, that have to face, you know, I think so, so many times in my life and I'm sure a lot of people's lives, like you take, you take for granted things that you get, you know, you have your senses, your ability to run and write. And I mean, all these little things that we kind of just take for granted as human beings. And when you're around people who don't have those uh, same advantages and have challenges that I would never even know how to deal with and face, and you see them like overcome it and like have a positive outlook on life and be doing great things. And you're like, man, I really have nothing to complain about, <laughs> you know, like, uh, whenever I find myself getting that way or feeling that way, like, Oh, I'm down about it. Or I'm, I'm, or you feel like, Oh, you want to sulk about life a little bit. You know, it's pretty, pretty easy to snap out of it when you see that on a regular basis. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. When your latte is cold or your iPhone screen is cracked and think the world's come to an end, you kind of remind yourself of the, you know, the, the Royal Marine that lost three arms in combat and does jujitsu and you go, okay, reset. Yep. hundred percent. All right. Well, you mentioned wrestling. So talk to me about school age, what you were doing athletics wise. Um, I love playing sports as a kid. Uh, we didn't have a lot of money, so I never got to play in like the club teams. Uh, but anything the school provided, like if I remember fifth grade was the first time I could do a sport. It was track and field for the school, but I got to do that. And I spent a lot of time at the boys and girls club as a kid. Um, playing basketball and stuff like that. But I just, I was always a very rambunctious kid, a lot of energy, loved to run, loved to wrestle, loved to fight, um, loved to get dirty. Um, and my freshman year of high school, I was really into basketball. I thought I'm going to be the next, the next big basketball player, you know? And, uh, the, my problem was that I didn't hit a growth stint until my sophomore year of high school. And so my freshman year, I'm about five foot four, about 130 pounds, kind of had that chub just a chubby little kid. And I uh, just was going through a phase of kind of just being a little chubby kid. And I didn't make the basketball team my freshman year. And I was, I'd already bought my shoes for the season. Or I, I think it was my birthday's in September. So I'd asked my parents for shoes for tryouts. And uh, so it was, you know, devastated. I, I made it to the final cuts and I didn't make the team. And I mean, I was devastated. And, uh, my brother, my dad had encouraged my older brother, Keith, to wrestle, um, and he started in seventh grade, uh, 
And so he encouraged me to come out for wrestling. And uh, the next thing I knew, I was in the living room practicing double legs on the carpet and getting rug burns. And uh, once I found the sport of wrestling, um, I never really just never looked back. Um, I, I loved it. I didn't know I was going to love it as much as I did, but um, it was just the competitive nature of it and the one-on-one indiv- individual part of it. I think I really gravitated towards um, and just trying to outwork other people and out hustle them. That was kind of my, my one attribute in basketball is that I would out hustle a lot of guys. I always remembered that I, I wasn't always the best, but I would out when they thought it was going out of bounds, I'd fly in out of nowhere and, you know, always put in that extra effort. Um, and so for wrestling, it was perfect for me. Um, I was horrible when I first started, I lost my first 27 matches. And, uh, I remember I was Owen 27, my freshman year before I finally got a win. And I was, I was wrestling at the, the minor leagues, the fresh freshman invitationals and junior varsity stuff. And, and still, but I was just having a, a good time and I really enjoyed it and stuck with it. Um, stopped playing any other sports. I just wrestled year round. Me and my brother would just stay on the mat when all the other guys on our team, you know, that would play other sports and do other things. They would, you know, come February every year, you'd, they'd disappear until next October and they wouldn't get on the mat. And me and my brother would just stay on the mat somewhere, some doing something all the time, the wrestling. So, that's why we really excelled and got good at it. It wasn't because we were anything special. It was just, we just never left the wrestling room. And, uh, so yeah, by our junior and senior year, we were having a lot of success and, uh, carried, carried me on through college and, uh, wrestled in college and for five years. And, uh, I think it just saved my life. I was getting into a lot of trouble before I found wrestling. I was getting suspended quite a bit, getting into fights. Um, I was introduced to skateboarding as a kid. And so that kind of culture we had, we, they built a skate park in Visalia where I grew up, the town I grew up in and they just built it. And so I spent a lot of time at the skate park, uh, getting introduced to, to things that weren't necessarily that great for me, you know? And, uh, once I found wrestling though, you know, my, suddenly my grades improved and my focus on school and what I was doing and it stopped getting into trouble because I had something to, I couldn't get in trouble for, you know, that mattered to me. Um, and so that's why I'm just such a big, you know, proponent to kids being active and being involved in things, whatever that, that is, it doesn't have to be wrestling, but something that's going to keep them out of trouble and on the straight and narrow and, um, teach them some life lessons. So I always tell kids to find something. I don't care what it is, find something that you care about outside of just coming to school and going to classes. Um, and so, yeah, I always, always try to f- help kids find that thing that they, that they can connect with and identify with and have fun and learning. And, um, yeah, I still coach wrestling now too. I coach the junior high team now. So I coached high school for many years, but it's a big time commitment and I'm a pretty busy guy with, you know, two jobs. So the junior high season's about, uh, the, as much as I can commit, but I have a really good time and I have about 10 special ed students on my team. Um, so they're always fun. Um, they'll do the funniest things, and it's great to see when when they win a match, like a legitimate win. It, man, that's a that's always the highlight of our season. Well, you talked about fighting. So many people that come on here, yeah, myself included, we 
get into a profession, whether it's, you know, MMA, whether it's firefighting, whatever it is. And a lot of times they'll be like, oh, well, you know, that's that's why you had an issue because you got punched in the head or you're a fighter or, you know, you saw horrible stuff as a firefighter. But as time goes on, kind of like under us, you know, really understanding the adaptive community, it's kind of the same with understanding mental health. And you start looking at early life and go, ah, there's a big, big thing that I was missing. It seems like a lot of people, whether one or both parents walked out, whether someone was fostered and or adopted, that there's that kind of subconscious voice of why wasn't I good enough for my parents? When you look back at the fighting with now with this mature lens that you have, do you identify why you were kind of leaning into the trouble side until you found the mentorship of wrestling? Yeah, I, I always, uh, I feel like I've always had a chip on my shoulder against the world. Like as a kid, I remember that was my kind of mentality was like, I was on the outside looking in and um, I think also growing up with Jacob and I remember family vacations, uh, you know, we would get a, we, my dad would always have a tent trailer, some sort of trailer, he'd, he'd, you know, some old rinkity dinkity uh, trailer that he would buy or trade or something. And um, I just remember that I would always be angry when people would stare at my little brother and that was something I, you know, I would lash out and say things to people in public as a kid, you know? Um, and yeah, I just, and I always just, to be honest, I just enjoyed fighting. Like I liked to, to be rough and wrestle and I liked it and I got beat up a lot as a kid, you know, but it wasn't that I was winning the fights necessarily, but I always, I always would find myself or, or inject myself, if I saw a guy was a bully to other kids, like I would find a way for that guy to come at me, you know, and then, okay, now I've got something, you know? Um, and so I don't know, you know, why I felt the way I did, but I, I think about certain things that and maybe there was something about adoption too, that played a role in that. I don't know, but um, yeah, once, once I found wrestling and, and, and after wrestling mixed martial arts too, um, you know, those have been, the things in my life that uh, help me have a sense of identity and also um, deal with life. You know, I, I could always go to the gym and I can always sweat, you know, and there's something to some of you said there. Um, and I'm the kind of person, if I don't get to a gym and like I could go a day or two, but once that third, fourth day hits and I haven't like exerted myself and sweat and worked out hard, I start losing my mind. So, uh, for me, it's just uh, as simple as that. I got to do it, you know. I can relate 100%. You talked about wrestling through college. So when you were high school age, I know you ended up in education. Was that what you were dreaming of initially or was there something else? Um, I think as a kid, I wanted to be a writer. That was kind of, I, I wrote for the school paper and I was the editor for the opinion section. So I was very much like, you know, the Iraq war was going on. And so I was a big uh, you know, kind of beatnik when it came to that, you know, and, uh, anti-war. And I remember getting into politics and, and, and I really liked writing. Um, and then I wrote for my college paper too. Um, what do you need? I'm on the sink. You need, you need to stop coming in and out of here. You're, you're in your underwear too. <laughs> um, but yeah, I loved writing. Um, but my, my, 
college, my college uh, journalism teacher was uh, on the nightly news for this for uh, the local station in San Jose. Um, he was the nightly news anchor, and he taught the journalism class, uh, and we ran the school paper and stuff like that. Um, but he had told me essentially that I can't remember exactly where he worked. I think it was like the San Jose Mercury or something like that. But essentially he had been in that profession for 40, 50 years, you know, and he had said, he told us about how, um, you know, back in the sixties or seventies, uh, you know, we had this bustling building of five stories and tons of reporters and people in different positions at the newspaper and, and how it's dwindled and, and dwindled and dwindled and, uh, so he kind of discouraged me from following a career in journalism and writing. Um, and, you know, and I and I could always write, you know, it doesn't have to necessarily be my profession. I could always try to write a book or try to write articles for an outlet. Nowadays, it's even easier to find a website that'll host you, you know. Um, so it's still something that I like to do. I like to I'm still into writing. But the education part was I think that I always. When I graduated from college, I wanted to, I knew I wanted to coach wrestling and I wanted to get, give back and, and give to other kids what I had gotten from coaches um, and from the sport. And so automatically I went back to my alma mater high school and became the head wrestling coach right out of college and spent five years doing that. Um, and as I was doing that, my fight career was taking off kind of and. So it started pulling me away from coaching a little bit. And so um, even to this day, I've, you know, now I'm just doing the junior high and, and have to be pretty limited in how much I can be involved. But um, I just love working with kids. I think, you know, kids need good people in their lives and that are steering them in the right direction and, and helping them grow and develop. And uh, it's a super rewarding job. You know, um, you get to make an impact, even if it's just, you don't even know it at the time. Some kid will come back to you years later and, and tell you you made an impact on him, and that's always, like, mind-blowing, you know? Um, so, yeah, I don't know, but I, I, I just – I don't – I can't imagine doing a job where I didn't feel like I was making a difference, you know? As small as the difference might be, I don't know, but you're doing something productive for society that's positive. You know, it's not just a, about making money. Like I, I've never been, like – I don't know. Like, I don't know how I would do it in a world where I was like, all I'm trying to do is maximize profits for my business. Like, I don't know, you know? Yeah. No, I, I know completely. That's why a lot of us become firefighters and cops and everything else, because, you know, you could be a salesman, you know, you can make a lot more money. We don't make a lot of money wearing a uniform, but when you drive home the next day, that fulfillment that you made a difference and that mentorship is so important so many people have been on here have been in really dark places when they were younger and it was a wrestling coach or a high school teacher or you know whatever it was someone who just saw them and gave them that self-belief that they needed and showed them another path other than the one they were on and you know so you don't have to be you know a soldier or a firefighter you can be just a regular member of your community but i think this is such an important conversation at the moment that rather than pointing fingers and rolling your eyes and saying kids today that you actually step up and you become a mentor in your own community. Yeah. There's a quote from Socrates or, or one of the, you know, the, the, like the OG philosophers. And I can't remember who, I think it was Socrates, but it was essentially 
he was essentially ragging on the the generation of youth in his day and age. Like this next generation doesn't have respect for their elders or this or that. And I always just thought that quote was so interesting. So whenever I find myself in those like kids these days moments, because you do have them, you know, there are things they do that bother you, you know, and you're like, oh, these kids, all they, they're all on their devices and, you know, they're, they're not going outside and playing like they used to. And, you know, they, it's a different world. Um, but there's certain things about the the youth and the, the next generation behind that one and the one behind that one that you do see like shifts in, in behaviors and, and how they treat each other. And um, there's some good things that are happening, you know, with those generations of kids that weren't around. I mean, some of those things we called the kids, you know, the, the bullying when I was in school in the 90s and the, the names we called each other and the terms we used I mean, it's good to see that some of that's gone away because uh, you do the kids are still kids, but you do. I at least feel like there is a sense of empathy amongst the current youth that my generation didn't grow up with. Um, so that's kind of good to see, you know. Absolutely. Well, you talked about wrestling in college. Were you studying education at that point? I actually got well. I got my my degree in history. Um, I loved history. Uh, I loved English and I loved history. I was God awful when it came to mathematics and I wasn't really that interested in science, the sciences, um, but philosophy, economics, politics, history, English, that was my wheelhouse. And um, so I, I got my bachelor's degree in, in history. And, uh, and th then I came back home to Visalia. I was living in the Bay area and I came back to the central Valley of California uh, farm farming communities and um, started coaching right out of college, uh, started substitute teaching. And while I was doing that, I was um, also starting my fight career. And so all this was happening. And um, then I got, went back to school and started working toward a teaching credential and um, was pretty, pretty sure I wanted to get into education. Um, and so I just worked toward that and, you know, it was fighting and, subbing and coaching and uh those were some fun times sometimes i forget about them because it's like i think before you have children and then you're like what was life like you know what was life like before children and uh i kind of forget to be honest with you <laughs> yeah yeah well they reframe your world like you think you know what life's about and then you have a child and you're like oh and you talk about selflessness i mean if you're parenting right then I would argue like 98% of what you do every day is for your children in some way, shape or form. Yeah. Yeah. Our, our Friday and Saturday nights definitely look a lot different today than uh, they did when I was, you know, in my, in my twenties. So you were wrestling. How did you transition into the MMA world? Um, I, well, I, so what I would do is I'd go away to school and I would wrestle and go to school and then in the summertime i would come home and my brother uh keith he only wrestled a year in college he wasn't really the college college wasn't really his thing he wasn't really much of an into academics um really good at working with his hands um but not a an academic kind of guy and so he don't, he only wrestled a year and he was also undersized for he was 125 is the lightest weight class um in college and my brother he weighed about a buck 15 soaking wet his freshman year of college. So 
um, a little bit undersized. And uh, he was living uh, with a, a friend of ours who we had wrestled with in high school. And so I would just crash on their couch in the summertime and um, usually pick up a, a summer job. And uh, I had a buddy um, who had wrestled with me in high school, Mitch, Mitchell Wyckoff. And he was training out in a little town called Exeter, California, about 15 minutes east of Visalia. Just a little martial arts kind of dojo, McDojo type gym. And uh, he invited me to go out and try it out. And so I went out, uh, didn't know what I was doing, but they threw me in the in the ring right away and started sparring and having a good time. Um, and then about a week later, I made my professional debut. And uh, <laughs> After a week? Yeah, just about a, literally about, I think I went like four or five times and they said, do you want to fight? And I was like, yeah, sure. I'll fight. You know, I think I've made $300 and, uh, yeah, luckily the, my first few fights, I wasn't fighting world beaters and, uh, I was a good wrestler. So I knew I could just, if things weren't going well in the striking, uh, I could always just double leg them and, and try to beat them up from on top of them and, not get caught in an arm bar or a triangle. And, um, but yeah, those early days, it was a, kind of the wild, wild west of mixed martial arts. You know, it's a lot of, uh, in native American casinos and Indian gaming casinos. Um, we we're hosting a lot of underground type fights and, uh, you know, I, I still remember out in Porterville, California at the table mountain casino, it was in a tent and, uh, there's a guy, in jean shorts cut off jean shorts and he's smoking a cigarette and then they say you're up and he's, he's heading in the cage. So, um, I mean, that was kind of what it was like back then. So, um, so I, I had my first three fights, uh, while I was still wrestling in college and I would just do it in the summertime. Um, and, but I'd never really, I would just train a little bit and then I would just jump in there and, uh, and then when I graduated from college, that's when I started training at Elite Team Visalia with Tom Knox, a uh, really good Brazilian jiu-jitsu guy. Uh, he's also a really famous professional skateboarder from like the early days. Um, he's kind of just a renaissance man, but uh, started actually learning some jiu-jitsu and, and taking the sport seriously. And that's really when my career started and learning boxing. I got really invested in the boxing community in the Central Valley. Uh, we, the central Valley in California is predominantly Hispanic, uh, probably 70% Hispanic. And so there's a vibrant boxing community here, uh, and, uh, fell in love with boxing. You know, I think if I'd have found boxing as, as a child, I think I would have pursued it and maybe not ever get into wrestling, um, uh, because I really like boxing and, um, uh, yeah, I started taking it seriously from there and fighting in different regional shows and stuff like that. And here I am now, I think I just had my 30th pro professional fight. So 16 years, I think I've been doing this. So it's kind of crazy. Amazing. With you coming in as a wrestler only, what was the evolution? Obviously you said you like the striking side to the boxing side. What was the evolution of your training that allowed you to continue that trajectory all the way to the UFC the first time when so many, you know, they have a few fights and then they they give up or they can't win any of them and they and they end up getting dissuaded that way? I think for me it was just the challenge, the challenge of a new thing, you know. Wrestling taught me like 
the importance of discipline and hard work, obviously those, those are kind of staples in the sport of wrestling. Um, but it also taught me like, like I talk to talk about this with kids all the time, like getting good at something like wrestling is repetitive. You're, you're doing this, you're, you're repeating the same thing over and over at practice over and over. And you have to kind of shut your brain off and say, I'm going to focus in on this technique that I'm trying to get better at. And I'm going to do it a, a thousand times. I'm going to shoot that sweep single over and over and over until I get better and better at doing it. Um, and so I just took the same approach to the other martial arts, you know, jujitsu is, although it's similar to wrestling in some ways, there's a lot of things you have to learn. Um, but again, it's about, I kind of take the same approach as like repetitive drilling. Um, and, and I just applied that same approach to the other martial arts and fell in love with them. And it's kind of interesting because each of the various martial arts that you train, whether it be boxing or kickboxing or Muay Thai or jujitsu, they all have like their own community and their own kind of vibe, you know? Um, and I didn't come from like a big MMA gym where it was like, we're an MMA gym. It was, I did my jujitsu at this gym and then I went and did my boxing at this gym and I did my kickboxing over here. And, and so you kind of had to engulf yourself in those communities and that environment. And so, um, and you were always the odd man out, you know, you were always the MMA guy coming into box with all these professional and amateur boxers. And so they, they were looking to, to use you to, to beat up on you and, and you were looking to prove yourself and prove your worth. Um, and so for me, that was the, the challenge. And I think it's a little bit unconventional because a lot of guys today, you know, move to a big MMA gym and that's that, you know, they just trained at the MMA gym. And I think that the fact that I had to go and go to a traditional Muay Thai gym or go to a boxing community kind of gym and or even my jujitsu, I went to a jujitsu sport jujitsu gym where they competed consistently in, in sport jujitsu, which is different than MMA, you know. Um, but I think that kind of having that background and, and coming up in the sport that way, there were a lot of benefits for for me, you know. Um, and so... I think too, you just fall in love with it. You know, if you love fighting and that's how I feel, I feel like I might, I may never, you know, end up, you know, going down to the history books as the greatest fighter to ever live. But like, there's something about it when you're in the fire and, and, uh, you have to kind of gut check yourself and, um, you have to overcome adversity in a fight and mentally get past that point. And, um, there's been a few moments in my career where it's just like, I've never felt more alive than when those moments happen. And you, and you do the, you do the thing that people are surprised you're able to do, you know, you overcome the adversity. Um, and I've had a few moments in fights that stand out to me that it just, uh, I don't know. Those are the things I'll remember. I think more than anything else is moments, you know? Now, you continue to rise and rise and rise to the point where you get a UFC contract, which is arguably the pinnacle and through some eyes when it comes to MMA. So let's talk about the first time. Is it 2014? Have I got that right? Yeah. Uh, and that was the goal from the start, especially after I graduated and moved uh, and, and started pursuing the sport. The goal was to try to get to the UFC. Um and I had a lot of hiccups just to make it to the UFC. I wasn't undefeated when I got to the UFC. I, you know, fought guys that were, were 
I, I always fought tough guys. You know, they'd bring in guys from Las Vegas and I'm the local guy that's got to fight this kid from Las Vegas, you know, that, that's got a lot of hype around them. Um, and I would be the local guy who took that fight. So, uh, you know, I think I was 12 and four or something like that. Um, when I got signed to the UFC the first time, um, had a nice little run of like six or seven in a row and got signed to the UFC, uh, on short notice. And, uh, so I was fighting in, in Las Vegas. I think I had 10 days notice for that first fight. Uh, and I ended up, I ended up fighting, uh, Aljamain Sterling in my UFC debut and it was his world champion, by the way. (laughs) Yeah. So he became world champion. Um, and it was a really a crazy, so after we fought, um, it was a close fight. He won uh, two rounds to one. He won the decision. Um, after we fought, he, he reached out to me and said, you know, he had never been to California and he wanted to come train with me. And so I said, yeah, I've got an extra room, guest room in our house, you know, um, come over and you could stay at my house and, and we'll go and kind of take you up and down California and, and train at some different gyms. And, uh, so he did that and he came out for a couple weeks and, uh, got, got to know him real well and got to train with him for a couple weeks and take him to some different gyms. And, uh, and then, you know, full circle, he obviously went on to have, have, have the success that he's had. And, um, when I was got called back to the UFC for the ultimate fighter, uh, he had moved to Las Vegas, at least part-time. He lives there part-time. He's from the East coast. Um, and so he was at all my fights for, well, I was on the show. And so I'd see him there every time. And, and then to make it to the finale and then I'm fighting in Boston and he's the main event. Um, so I got to hang out with him all week, uh, leading up to our fight too. So it's just kind of a crazy full circle thing. Uh, we've had very different paths, but, uh, it's always good when I get to reconnect with him and I've always been a you know fan of his and supporter whenever he's fighting. So, um, yeah, it was just kind of a cool, cool full cir- circle moment for us. Yeah. Well, I mean, of the four that you had, um, yeah, Manny Gamburian is another one that I think of, you know, I know it's a slightly older, um, generation, but I mean, absolutely revered at the time as well. So you had some very, very tough people. You fought your way all the way up to this point, you get this golden ticket, this contract, then four fights later, it's taken away. So many people, whether they're athletes that get it stripped, either it's their last time they aged out in the Olympics, whether it was the NFL and they blew their knee out, or whether it's a firefighter that got hurt or retired, you know, it, it can be a struggle then. You've had you know your legs cut from under you. How did you deal with that first time when you lost the contract in 2015? Uh, I mean, I just kept, kept going, you know, I, I, I started teaching full time. Um, I was a substitute teaching my entire time I was in the UFC, which was a great job for what I was pursuing because when I had a fight, uh, lined up and scheduled, I could not go, I could not work essentially and train full time. And then when I didn't have a fight, I could up my work and, and, and make money that way. Um, but then when I got released from the UFC, I had finished my teaching credential and uh, had a job opportunity. So ended up going full time into teaching. And so I wasn't really sure how I was going to try to manage training when I have such a commitment with teaching. And uh, but we just made it work. You know, I didn't have kids yet. So um, I think it was a little bit easier. Uh, but I would just go in before work and after work and train and 
uh, just kept myself busy on the smaller shows. I fought, you know, won a couple smaller regional show titles and uh, was just trying to fight the best guys I could find outside the UFC. Um, and I still had a couple hiccups. I had gone up, I tried to do the, the Conor McGregor uh, double champ thing uh, in one promotion where I was the Bantamweight champion. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go up to the featherweight weight class and try to beat their champion so I could have both titles. And maybe that's what I need to do to get noticed by the UFC again. Uh, and I lost. And so it was a, it was definitely a journey because I would go on like a three or four or five win streak and think, okay, I'm close, man. I'm going to get called again. And then I would lose. And then I'd go on a three or four or five fight win streak and then I'd lose. And so there was one time, uh, my first loss outside the UFC, um, was the time I had gone up to 145s and I thought, okay, I'm done. I'm done. I'm retiring. Uh, I think we had just had Ella, our oldest uh, child. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to focus on being a dad, get back into coaching wrestling and just, you know, can't be selfish. And I'm just going to, you know, pr put this fighting stuff. I'm done. And uh, I, I was out of, I was out of the gym for, probably about three months and I was just coaching high school wrestling and teaching full time and had a young child and, but I just missed it. I missed, and then I started finding myself going back to jujitsu a couple times a week. And then I started finding myself going back to kickboxing and boxing classes. And next thing I knew, I was like, well, if I'm doing all this training, I might as well fight, might as well keep fighting. So, uh, yeah, I jumped back in there and, uh, continued my career from there. And, it's been a been a long journey to get back, but uh, when the opportunity with the Ultimate Fighter appeared, um, it was just the right timing for me. You know, I'm, they're doing a season of veterans, and that's what I was. You know, as a veteran of the UFC and at my weight class, so uh, just kind of the, the things lined up right, the right time, and um, fortunate. You know, fortunate to get back, get another opportunity in the UFC, and you know, I'm gonna make the most of this and and hopefully uh have some success and finish my career here in the next couple of years but uh excited about some of the fights on the horizon and there's a lot of fun fighters out there in the ufc that i i'm hoping i get to mix it up with here in this next year or two well between your first and second ufc contracts or experiences um in 2018 something unique happened to so talk to me about reconnecting with that original family your biological family yeah, I was, uh, I had, I had a sister that I didn't know I had, and I had never really pursued finding out, um, what other relatives I had out there or siblings. Um, I, I was always curious. My brother's never been too curious about it and I've always had more curiosity. Um, but I'd never really pursued it. And, uh, I got a message on Facebook uh, from uh, a, a, a girl named Cindy and she said she was at my sister and has, she had known about me and Keith her whole life um, and we had never known about her and um, so yeah I connected with her and started talking to her and uh, she made a trip out um, to, to meet us and, and visit and uh, so you know, every couple of years, her and her family will drive from Oklahoma and they'll come to California and stay with us for a couple of weeks. And um, they're coming out this summer, actually. We just talked about it a, a few days ago, actually. So um, 
connected with her and just trying to build a relationship with her. Um, she, she was kind of the one who got left behind. You know, she, uh, my parents had told Tammy, my birth mother, um, that if she ever had any more children and she couldn't keep them, that let them know and they would adopt that child. And, uh, it just never happened with Cindy. And so she stayed with Tammy and I think was in and out of different foster systems as well. And she would sometimes be back with her mom and other times she wouldn't be. Um, but she's done exceptionally well given the circumstances she was dealt. Um, she's a, a, a mother of, uh, they're just found out. So they have four, they're going to have their fourth child. Now, uh, husband's a really great guy. He works from uh, Michelin tires. So he's a hardworking guy, uh, but a good man. Um, and so, you know, it's been fun to connect with them and get to meet my nieces and nephews and, uh, my nephew's wrestling. So he's always got questions for me and stuff like that. And, uh, so yeah, it's been, it's been nice. And then I, I, I went out two summers ago and, and met my birth mother and met my birth father, uh, separately. Um, and so it was a, it was an interesting experience. I think one that I needed to experience. Uh, it definitely gave me sen a sense of closure in a lot of ways. Uh, it wasn't that I was going out to necessarily develop new relationships that I wanted to have, but um, it just gave me a sense of closure. And I don't know why, but, and I still communicate with them uh, through email um, from time to time. Um, but I think for me, it was just the right time to, to go out and kind of just find out where I came from. And, uh, you know, hear, hear my story from their perspective, um, which you always have to take with a grain of salt, I think. But um, it was a good time for me to, to kind of explore that, that part of my life. I had a, a guest on, Kevin Berthea. And I don't know if you've seen on social media, um, he is one of the guys that was going to jump off the Golden Gate Bridge, African-American guy, white T-shirt, and he's looking, you know, facing the bridge. And one of the um, the CHP officers ended up talking him off, uh, Kevin Briggs. And I had them both on the show. And Kevin Berthea was talking about being adopted. Um, and as he got a little bit older, there was a sense of, you know, my real parents, they're going to be amazing. And he built this whole story about them. And sadly, it wasn't true. When he, when he met them, they weren't the people that he dreamed that they would be. But, you know, again, there was closure. So sometimes you hear these beautiful stories and the adopted parents, the, the original parents are amazing. And then, you know, they have a relationship with both and all that stuff. And sometimes that's not the case. And like you said, there's closure as well. But I think what's amazing when you talk about your sister and yourself as parents now, we always have the power to stop that domino effect. And like you said, that mental health crisis and the addiction, these things that ravage neighborhoods, you know, all through this country, whether it's poor, you know, middle class, rich, whatever you want to classify it as. But the only power we have as parents, and they say you want to change the world, start at home. The only power is whatever your parents did, you know, that you experienced, that you physically have the chance to actually stop that and create that, you know, home for your your children. Is that something that you're kind of cognizant of that you focus on now as a father? Yeah, hundred percent. You know, um, that's why I'm proud of my sister and, and the way she's raising her kids. I mean, they still live in a, they live in a town called Warica, Cal or Warica, Oklahoma. It's a tiny little town. And what was very interesting for me going back and, and visiting them was 
you know, you hear the stories about um, big pharma going into a lot of these poor communities and exploiting them. Um, and that it definitely happened there. They're all on, uh, it's not Oxycontin. What's the one they give them now to get off the Oxycontin? Oh, the uh, methadone. Methadone. They're all take little methadone pills. All these people in this town are on methadone. Uh, and they're trying to decrease their dosage. They're always talking about it. And I mean, they, it was, it was an eye opening experience being in that community and seeing that. Um, and so I'm proud of her and the work she does as a mom and, and she's a great mom to those kids. And, um, yeah, that's, that's true though. And, and that's, you know, you think about that as a, a parent, you know, and I was just fortunate enough to get adopted. Uh, had I not been adopted, I don't think I would have made it. I don't think I would have done as well as Cindy is doing, uh, if I was in her situation. So, um, you know, she lives a clean life and a sober life. And, uh, uh, you know, I think it would have been a harder thing for me to do given some of, and I think that's one of the bigger things too, is you always, you're always kind of battling in your head, like nature versus nurture. Like what are my natural tendencies genetically that I'm predisposed to and how much of this has been, you know, I grew up in a good household. My parents were loving people and great human beings and they didn't drink and there's no substance abuse problems or anything. And then, you know, but I come from this genetic trait of addiction. Um, and I do feel that, you know, I feel like I'm a, I'm an addict and whatever, whatever I'm going to be doing, I'm, I'm addicted to it. And it's all I consume and think about. And so for me, it's just always, it's been a journey, but it's been about trying to find things to be addicted to that are positive for my life, you know, cause I'm going to be addicted to something. So you got to make sure that those things that I'm addicted to are good things for my life. And, uh, and so that's kind of where I'm at now. It's such a fascinating conversation too, because people, you know, talk, is it, is it nature? Is it nurture? And obviously the answer is yes, it's both. But when I was young, we were taught, for example, your DNA is your DNA. It is what it is. And now there's this whole concept of epigenetics where you literally can morph your DNA based on your behavior that can be negatively or can be positively. So even if you came from a family with a um, a history of addiction, you through your actions now, your sister through her actions now are literally changing your DNA and your genetics so that your children are experiencing something completely different. So I think when you get that side of the story, it infuses a lot more hope rather than, you know, throwing your hands up in the air, which is the old mentality of, well, you know, it's in my family. You know, I've got, we've all got bad thyroids or, you know, whatever it is that you hear some people say, it's like, no, you can control it. Doesn't mean it's going to be as easy for person A as person B, but the nurture side is a big, big part of it, you know? And so the same way as as it was skewed negatively, by generations prior, you have the power to pull it back the other way, but it's not going to be easy. That's the thing. Yeah. And I, one of the things I feel like I've learned a lot the last few years, especially is just the habits you build, like being deliberate in my habits, you know, like you develop habits, like little things I'll notice, like um, these stupid energy drinks. I've got them on Celsius now and I'm really limiting how much I have but I'll find myself in a habit of stopping at the gas station after work before I'm going to the gym and saying, Oh, I think a Celsius would kind of give me that, that, that caffeine I needed second wind in the day. And I'll notice if I do it one day, 
Then I do it the next day. Then I do it the next day. And the next thing I know, I'm like, I've had six energy drinks this week. And so I'll be like, I don't want to have six energy drinks this week. And so I'll have to break that habit. Like, okay, I have to make a co- like a conscious decision now. I'm not going to get the energy drink after work every day. And so for me, it's just like learning about how I'm have ha- building the right type of habits, whether it's, you know, other things like I, uh, you know, I find myself, I'll, I'd, I'd be scrolling through my phone at night and I'm laying in bed. Well, I don't like that. So maybe I need to put my, uh, my charger in the living room and my phone stays out there. And so when I go to bed, I pick up a book and read for 10 minutes as opposed to scroll through mindlessly on some application. So it's just, for me, I've been in a kind of a process. I feel like the last few years of building, trying to build good habits and recognizing if I'm building negative habits and, and correcting them quickly. So that's just kind of where I'm at right now. I feel like. Yeah, I can, I can agree hundred percent with the cell phone. And then for me it's alcohol as well. I don't binge drink or anything like that, but that self-talk of, Oh, I'll use it to wind down. I'll have, you know, a glass of wine or whatever. It's like, no, it's, it's poison. That's the reality. It is poison, James. But sometimes I'm, you know, I fall into that and sometimes I'm strong enough to, to, to not, and I will, you know, not drink for long periods of time, but at the same time, if I open that door very, very, very quickly, I'm, you know, having one or two in every evening and falling into that again. So when I think of a teacher and an MMA fighter, I think of Rich Franklin, OG fighter. And then I think of here comes the boom, which I'm sure you've probably been, you know, uh, compared with more than once. So what is the reception of your students knowing that their teacher is not only teaching them US history and economics, but also is out in the cage um, snatching souls on a weekend. <laughs> um, it's I I taught high school uh, seven years, and I taught AP history, um, which I loved teaching that course. Um, but then last year, I uh, I was commuting about forty five minutes south every day to go to work, um, and I was getting kind of tired of doing that and trying to fit the training with another with an hour and a half commute on top of it, you know. Um, and so I found a job, uh, closer to home last year. Um, and I, the problem was that it, there wasn't any history positions open at any of the high schools. Uh, but there was a junior high PE teacher job. And so, and I coached for, you know, I, I'm, I'm used to coaching and being around kids in, in that kind of environment. So I just told, so I didn't really ever envision myself being a PE teacher, but um, I wanted to get a job closer to home. And so this is my second year at the middle school teaching PE, which I do miss history. I miss being in the classroom, especially the AP classes were just always a lot of fun for me. Um, but it's a whole different experience now and dealing with the different demographic of students as far as where they're at in their process and age. Um, and I found a, found that I like it a lot. You know, I'm dealing with 12 year old kids, 13 year old kids and, Sometimes I felt like at the high school, because I would only, I would have like, you know, two or three periods of AP, but then I would have two or three periods of like general education, history or government or economics or whatever they were having me teach. And um, sometimes in those gen ed classes, you get a 16 year old in there and I hate to say it because you never, you never say never, but they've already gone down so far down a path and there's just it's not going to happen for them, at least not right now. Like they're going to have to do some real growing up. Um, I mean, I've had kids in my class who wouldn't do anything and I'm, I'm trying to talk to them and reason with them like, Hey man, 
you got to pass this class to get out of high school. You know, like what, what could I do to help you, man? I want you to pass. I'm not here to fail you. I want you to do well, but you've got to meet me halfway. And, and I've had, I've had kids straight tell me like, Oh, I'm just waiting to get to continuation school. You know, once I hit 16, I can go to continuation and, and they're just willing to just sit there and flunk it all out. And I'm just, you know, so there was a several times as a high school teacher where I felt a little deflated, like, there's you know, there's no hope for this guy or I, I can't do anything to change this guy's trajectory. Uh, whereas the middle school, those kids are really, that's the big, they're going to choose their path about that age, uh, what direction they're going to head. And so I feel like I get to make, you know, I always joke with my, my coworkers and I say, we're more, we're more uh, guidance counselors than we are teachers out here in the PE department because we just get a lot of opportunities to have conversations with kids and, uh, build relationships with them um, that maybe in a classroom setting where you're busy and you're focused on the academic side of things, you don't have those same type of opportunities. So it's, it's been a, a fun experience. And as far as the fighting stuff goes last year, they, the kids kind of knew I was a fighter, um, but they didn't really, I don't, it wasn't advertised as much, you know, and it wasn't um, I had, I did have a couple fights and so I would have to go to my fights, but uh, it wasn't as big of a thing. And then, when the ultimate fighter things happened, it, it was very different. And, uh, yeah, they were super, super excited, you know, and, and, and but I, I feel like it, as time has passed since this last fight I had, um, you know, kids are very much the, their world is, you know, different. The way they think about the world and see things is very different than a, adults. So, um, I think they kind of forget, you know, and then they'll remember when I say, okay, well, I've got this coming up. I'm going to be gone for a few days. And they're like, oh, and they'll get interested again. But I feel like I'm at a stage right now where they're kind of forgot about my fighting stuff, which is fine with me because I'm, I don't really try to be the focus of attention. You know, I try to, they're the focus of attention. And, um, but I, you know, I can use it and I use it all the time to teach them lessons uh, that I've learned uh, about overcoming. We just had uh, boys basketball tryouts. Uh, were two weeks ago and I had a boy who loves basketball and he didn't make the team last year and he practiced and practiced and practiced and he got a lot better from last year to this year. Um, and I would tell him that you've gotten so much better than you were last year. And, but I, I was still a little skeptical that he was going to make the team and he didn't end up making it again. Um, so then, but being able to share with him my story, like, you know, the best thing that ever happened to me was not making my freshman basketball team because look what it did to my life and like I found what I really loved and it changed the trajectory of my entire life this thing that I thought was negative and at, at the time had someone asked me is this going to be a good thing in your life I'd say no this is horrible you know and it ends up being like the in my opinion like the, the best thing that ever happened to me uh, or one of the best things that's ever happened to me um, so being able to kind of relate to them in those ways and tell those stories and uh, use m my experience as a fighter as a wrestler uh, to try to help help them and help some of these kids make good decisions and, and find their, their thing, whatever that thing is, you know? You've got a unique perspective because you taught a very academic subject and then you shifted to PE specifically. You've been a high-level athlete most of your life. What is your perspective of physical education in schools? My, I've got two boys, one's 22, one's 16. So one's in kind of varsity track at the moment. He's, he's very much gone down the athletic side. The other one was more of a musician, not really big into exercise. But 
when I look at it through kind of like a British lens, when and again, very different generation. I went to school in the eighties, um, and eighties and nineties. Um, you know, PE was was something that we always did. It was, you know, non-negotiable. It was part of your your school week. But as a parent, you see these programs, as you said earlier, I couldn't play because it was too expensive. So some sports literally kids are uh you know, removed or, or there's a barrier to entry, just pure finance. Then you have these recesses being cut. Then you have PE programs being cut. Or <laughs> in my son's uh, case, they have one here called Hope. But I think two or three weeks in, all they'd done was, you know, watch PDFs and PowerPoints and videos and they hadn't done any exercise. So even if they call it PE, it wasn't actually movement. So I kind of totally loaded that question. But what what is your perspective on physical education looking through an athlete's eyes um i mean you've got like a variety of kids you know you've got kids that love sports that they every single day they show up and they want to play and they want to get after it and they love the athletics and then you've got kids who can't do a side shuffle you know like they just have no coordination they're not athletic if someone throws a basketball at them they're ducking like this they're not trying to you know like they just don't have it and so for me, I try to approach it like, hey, whether you're going to be uh, a superstar athlete or you're just going to be a person who doesn't play any sports, you still, you know, you need to move your body every day. You know, like find things that you can do that you enjoy and move your body every day because that's going to be better for your long-term health and well-being. Um, and so we really, in our department, I, I feel like we've done a pretty good job of trying to develop a curriculum that um, gives kids a lot of choice and also variety. Uh, we don't just do like traditional ball and sport, sport, sports, you know, it's not just the traditional sports, but we introduce them to a lot of different things. We have a pickleball unit. We do uh, things like that, you know, like people can get into different things to be active that they have fun with. Um, so we try to expose them to a lot and then give them a lot of choices and variety of options but as long as they're moving every day uh and they're exercising um that's kind of our our kind of mission um but yeah i don't know you know i think kids they need to be active every single day and moving their bodies and uh pe there's problems <laughs> there's uh there's i think the junior high kids are a little bit better than the high school kids as far as like their willingness to participate and the, the kind of pushback you get from certain things. Um, but you know, we do run into challenges where, you know, we've got to try to get kids, they've got to, we've got fitness testing and things like that. And, and getting a kid to actually give in effort on things is sometimes a challenge when they want to walk a mile in 20 minutes and you're just like pulling your hair out, trying to motivate them, find things to motivate them. But, most of them are uh, are pretty good about participating and putting in effort. And uh, I just try to get them, especially the ones that aren't really athletic, I try to help them find something that they enjoy that's movement-based, you know, whatever that is. I had a guy on the show, Doug Orchard, and I can't even remember how I came across his uh, documentary, but he made a, a documentary a few years ago called The Motivation Factor. And it was a school... I forget the name of the area, but it was right around you somewhere. I think it was Central California back in the 50s and 60s. And they kind of copied um, like a Russian PE or, or exercise regimen. 
and they added in almost like a martial arts belt system to high school. So they would get the kids into teams and you start off with, you know, let's say white shorts, the colors were shorts. And they had to get to a point where they could do, you know, exercise A, B, C, D, and E as a group. And then they would promote. And then now you're blue shorts and red shorts and gold shorts or whatever it was. And watching the footage, and you may have even seen it. It might come across your uh, your feed on, on social media if you ever look at it. But it says like, you know, high school in the 60s is usually what it says. But what was amazing is not only did bullying go down, grades went up. But then if a child chose to play a sport, then they didn't have to worry about the conditioning side. I mean, they obviously they would do additional, but they were already strong and fit. But if, as you said, if they didn't really have a, an interest in sport specifically, then they were really fit band members or history or, you know, whatever it was. So it was such a beautiful system. And they actually, uh, one school in California started up again. But then COVID hit, and from what I understand, they shut it down and never started it again. But it was all just bodyweight stuff. It was the parallel bars, the long parallel bars at Shuffle. It was the pegboard. It was partner carries and runs. And um, this, I think it was like 10 minutes of calisthenics with push-ups and star jumps. And But it was it was amazing. And all these, these students looked uh, incredible. And you don't have to be an athlete. You just excel at whatever area you're doing, but including academics. Because as you said, when you're sat in a classroom... It's very hard to keep kids' attention. If you let them burn off some steam first, now they're going to be more engaged. Oh, 100%. My, we do, uh, so I teach seventh graders predominantly. I think I have five periods of seventh graders. And then I have one period of sixth graders. Um, and the way it works with the sixth graders is that they alternate. So one week I'll see them Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And then the next week I, I see them Tuesday, Thursday, and I have two groups, two classes during that, you know, one, and they alternate each week. And the sixth grade teachers, I have to go to their classroom and pick them up because they're, they walk in a line, uh, to get to, to, that's the big difference between sixth and seventh grade The sixth grade. They still do the lines and they've got to walk single file and all that stuff. And, uh, the sixth grade teachers always tell me every time I pick them up, please run them hard today, please, (laughs) please. Please get them to burn some of the energy, and uh, so I always make make a note to make sure I get them nice and sweaty. The sixth graders especially, but yeah, I would love to see a program like that. Us, they used to have a program like that at my school where they had different shorts, and the shorts met that they had achieved different fitness levels, um, and you know they had a color system, um, and they did away with it. So I don't know, you know, maybe if you could bring research from that study and take it to a school board and say, Hey, here's the data on this program. Here's how it helps the school and the students grow. And we want to try to implement that here. Um, that'd be something I'd be interested in trying to, to bring to the school board, you know, and seeing what they said. Um, so I don't know how receptive they would be, but yeah, something like that. I think, just uh I think setting the standards a little bit higher on the physical fitness side, you know, um, where they are going to be getting sweaty every day and, and all that stuff. And, and we, they do, you know, we, we, we run them and, um, we do calisthenics and we do body weight stuff. Um, we do pull-ups, we do, um, push-ups, we do core exercise work. Um, we have one day a week where I take them into a, the gym, uh, and which is just a straight, like a hit workout where it's some cardio based, uh, stuff, box jumps, things like that. Um, 
So I feel like we do a better job than probably a lot of places, but man, if I need to look into that study from that guy you're talking about a little bit more and see if there's some data that I could bring to a school board and, and have a convert start opening the door to that kind of a conversation. What's the name of your school again? Uh, I teach at a Tascadero middle school. Because I know, I think it was Laredo. Have I got that right? I'll look it up anyway. I'll find it for you. But the motivation factor is the name of the documentary. It's, I mean, I think, I don't even know if it's on the Amazon. I think you have to just go to the site and, you know, pay three bucks, whatever it is to watch it. But um, amazing. And it's not, you know, I, or I think he's got all the data and everything from back then. But as you said, you know, we've got kids that maybe don't get the best influence when they get home. So, you know, some people are like, well, school shouldn't have to do everything. No. But what an amazing place to, for a kid to learn about movement and exercise and also diet and nutrition. So another thing I think that's huge is we should get regular cooking back into kitchens and schools, you know, or you see the Cisco bus or the Cisco truck coming and dropping off all the processed shit instead of, you know, what we used to do in all schools was you have, you know, people working in the kitchen that would cook real food and the kids would come and eat it. So I think if we just devolved back to you know, the, the 20s in those areas, we would literally revolutionize childhood obesity in itself. Yeah, and one of the more frustrating things in America is there are foods that, and the chemicals they allow in our foods, and I'm not like super versed in it, and under you know, but I just see, it's frustrating when you see like uh, the ingredients list of a bag of Doritos in the United States, but then Doritos sells Doritos in other countries that have bans on some of those chemicals and they somehow still sell them and they somehow still make them. They just don't have those chemicals in them. And so that's been a little, just kind of an eye opening seeing some of that stuff and like, man, we really need to like think about what we're putting in our bodies. And, and, uh, I don't know if there's a, a food industry that's lobbying the right people. I'm sure that's happening. Um, but yeah, kids, we talk a lot about nutrition with them, um, helping them understand how to how to read nutrition on the back of a, a label, um, and then talking about ingredients and talking about, and another part of the frustrating thing, and I don't know how it is there, but here is that you do have this like niche market of organic stores that you have to be pretty wealthy to shop at. And so that's a little frustrating too. You know, the, 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 the organic apple costs, you know, so much more than the non-organic apple. And you're like, well, you're really limiting who's got access to this quality food. Then if this is the way we're going to go about it. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But it's all about subsidies there. You know, the people that make the chemical covered food get tax breaks and incentives and the local farmers which again post covid we should have farmers thriving right now like matt irish acres i think is matt his farm is um you know they should be getting all the subsidized now you know oh we need to realize there was a massive block in the the food delivery system we need to go back to all our local farmers making clean food where it would be cheap because you're buying it from farmer steve or farmer jane you know directly down the road and you wouldn't have all these transportation fees and the middleman with the grocery store and then it would be affordable for everyone but that's not the system that we have and if a two-year pandemic wasn't enough to change people's views on this i don't know what would be yeah unfortunately it could be i don't know how your experience is but like having two daughters and now a son on the way and like they're, you know, you know, they're entering into a world that you don't know where it's heading and it's scary. And 
you want to protect your kids, but you also want, I don't know. It's, sometimes I can get, get my own head about like, what am I, why am I bringing children into this world with this so, so much wrong with it, you know? And, uh, but I did see a, a good thing the other day about that. It said something to the effect of like, I think it was like a play on words on, uh, you know, Oh, what was it? Whenever, whenever someone, you know, says, I don't want to have children and bring them into this very, you know, troublesome world. Um, I'm reminded that I'm, and I'm going to screw this up, but I'm reminded that I'm uh, raising, I'm not ra- I'm raising um, dragon slayers to be, to, to fight dragons. You know what I mean? Like, so I, I kind of like that one. I, I'm sure I screwed that up to some degree, but <laughs> I think you get the gist of it, you know, just you're raising, you're raising uh, people to fight those corruptions and, and problems in society, I guess. 100%. Well, I think also as a parent, I mean, this is why I do what I do now. Like my kids are 16 and 22 and I'm still trying to change the world for them. You know, not single-handedly, of course, but be one of the voices that moves the needle because, you know, yes, we brought them in and yes, they are the future, but it doesn't mean that we have to just say tag your it and then stop trying, you know? So I'm, I'm optimistic, but I think it's platforms like this and social media when it's used properly educate people bring them together highlight the problems bring solutions with the problem not just bitching um we can make change but we got to get people educated so they understand why it's a problem in the first place 100 percent, yeah yep so you get a second chance in the ufc now you find yourself on the ultimate fighter tv show i I was just racking my brains when we were talking a second ago trying to remember who else had been on here that was in the house i had chuck liddell on obviously you you train at the pit now so now it's one of your uh fight colleagues um but they were talking about the experience um but this was quite a while ago now so back in the day it was very apparent it was kind of like that um reality tv cocktail they put all the fighters in they fill the liquor cabinet full of booze and they film everything and wait for them to you know just destroy each other basically you can see it's been cleaned up a lot now but what were some of the 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 highs or pros and what were some of the lows of that environment that obviously is still made for tv i mean you guys are just on your fight journey but there is an entertainment fly on the wall element to it as well yeah this uh this season in particular was uh very advertising heavy <laughs> um conor mcgregor i think a part of his uh contract to do the show was that he was going to be able to promote all of his products and so he has not just his irish stout or irish whiskey uh proper 12 that's his most famous product but he also has uh, uh a cream to help with inflammation he has uh, a stout company, uh, forged Irish stout. He has, um, a protein company, um, that makes protein and nutri- nutritional stuff. Um, and so all these different, uh, companies that he has were, were broadcast throughout the house. Um, you know, we had limited, uh, counter space and counters and or cabinets with, uh, you know, plates and dishes and things like that in it. But there was an entire counter of proper 12, uh, probably 100 bottles of proper 12, if not more. Um, And uh, so some of that was a little bit. And then he would come over to the house and he would he would call the house and he would say, oh, to his team, because we each got to train twice a day at the facility, the UFC uh, Apex. 
And he would call mid midway through the day and he would say, Hey guys, we're not going to the apex tonight. I'm going to come to you to do a workout at the house. But every time he came to do the workout at the house or do something at the house, it was always to promote one of his products uh, where he would be like doing a rowing competition and then he would promote whatever thing is associated with that. Or he came over and made an Irish stew, which was really cool. Um, but it was really because he wanted to show that he's putting the stouts in the stew and that was the big thing, you know? And so it was very uh, commercial kind of driven and heavy. Um, and so I kind of just was like watching a lot of that unfold and getting a laugh out of it, but also like seeing how, how it works, you know? Um, but, um, luckily we had all the guys in the house were good guys. You know, we didn't have any scumbags. Um, one of the guys actually didn't, we were able to bring two photos uh, from home, like photos of your kids or your family or whatever. And, uh, one guy didn't bring any photos and I asked him like, Hey, why didn't you bring any family photos? And he, he said, I didn't know who was going to be here. I didn't want know if there was going to be some scumbag. I don't want him seeing my family, you know? And I didn't, I kind of took me back. Like I didn't think like that, but luckily we didn't have anybody like that in the house. Um, not everybody got along all the time or anything like that, but, um, genuinely they were all genuine generally they were all genuine guys uh and good good men so some of them were young and kind of foolish but um a good crop of guys so and even the drinking and stuff you know back in the wild west days of mma a professional fighter was a lot different than what it is today um if you want to make it at the highest level you're not drinking alcohol prior to a fight you know like I don't drink alcohol for, at all for an entire 12 weeks, 14 weeks, whatever at all. I don't drink any alcohol. Um, and even, even when I'm out of training camp, like right now I'm getting ready for a surgery and not able to train too much right now. And you still really try to always be cognizant of, okay, I've got to watch my diet and, and, and stay, you know, you've got to live the life. And so uh, as the guys started getting eliminated, from the competition there was a little bit of that going on but not uh it never seemed to get out of hand like you'd seen in some of the past seasons where guys were getting so obliterated that they're fighting each other in the in the you know front yard or anything like that brilliant now what about um being a dad i mean you are in the house obviously you're if i'm reading it right as a viewer you don't really get much contact with your family. And if, you know, you, you have a win or there's something else, you get this extra time then. So being a father myself and being just away for, you know, two, three days as a firefighter would, would be horrible. I hated it. So how did you deal with that side and how did your family deal with, with holding the line while you were over there? That was definitely the hardest part for me. Uh, and I knew that going in, like, I'm not worried about the competition the training demands, none of that stuff was going to bother me. I've been doing this for a long time and I kind of know what I'm getting myself into. And when it comes to the physical part of the sport, um, the part I knew was going to be the most challenging and it definitely was, was just being away from my kids for six weeks, my wife for six weeks uh, with no contact and not knowing how things were going at home and kind of, you know, playing out a lot of scenarios in your head about what's, what could be going wrong at home. You know, uh, I missed, uh, the end of basketball season and my daughter who's short for her age, uh, was getting very frustrated 
uh, because she's, you know, pretty much at her age, the, the basketball, whoever's the tallest kid is making the most baskets because they're all just standing there with their hands up. And uh, the tallest one usually gets the rebound. And then, you know, by the third or fourth attempt at laying it up, they get it in. And uh, she was getting very frustrated because she'd never got to score a point. And um, I missed it, but she scored her first basket. And so I was bummed I missed that. Um, my wife actually had a surgery, a skin cancer removed, uh, while I was gone. And, uh, luckily the production was able to uh, reach out to my mother who had come to stay with my wife for a couple of days while she was having that surgery. And, um, they were able to relay that information that she was safe and healthy and everything. I didn't get to actually talk to her, but they were able to relay that through my mom. Um, so that was good to hear, um. But yeah, that was definitely the most challenging part uh, was just being away for that long. My wife took on a lot of res extra responsibility, um, you know, with me gone. And it was in some ways it was a good thing because I came back and she was like, man, I've, I ever needed to realize how important you are to, to running this, <laughs> to running this ship, you know, um, you did you disappearing for six weeks like that showed me that man he does quite a bit of stuff around the house and and helps out quite a bit so uh maybe that was a good a blessing in disguise but yeah it was the toughest part and at the if you made it to the semifinals of the show the day before the final fight the day before we left uh they let you make a 10 minute phone call or zoom call home and of course it's all videotaped you know um but I knew I was like, oh, I'm going to cry like a baby. Like as soon as I see my kids, like I'm going to start crying and I'm going to look like I'm going to be the guy on there just crying. And sure enough, that's what happened. But whatever, I guess. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what men do, though. That's the, the crazy thing. When I was young is like, you know, why are you being such a pussy and crying on TV? Well, I've had people on here that are Navy SEALs, SAS, Ocean Lifeguards, you name it, all in tears because that's what men do, you know, when we're sad or we're we're touched by something that's beautiful, then, you know, you cry and it's a normal human emotion. And it's, I'm glad to see that stigma being smashed now because it needs to be. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I definitely grew up with that. Like men, you, you the manly kind of like, you don't cry uh, mentality. Uh, and I don't think my dad ever pushed that or anything, but I just think in general in society, it's always been something that is not manly. Um, but for me, if it's anything to do with my kids, I'm probably crying. So, <laughs> Absolutely. Me too. Well, then, so you get to the final, a very close fight with Brad Katona. Doesn't go your way on that particular night. Now you are about to have surgery on hernia. Is that right? Yeah, I'm having hernia surgery uh, on Wednesday. Uh, but I actually have a torn groin. And my adductors, like these big muscles underneath you, uh, that kind of go all the way down. They're big muscles and uh, there's a tear in that. So I'm doing physical therapy for that. And now I'm having surgery on my hernia. They only found the hernia because I had gone in for the the groin tear. And they were like, yeah, you have a torn groin, but you also know you have a hernia. But they said that it, it, the pain wasn't coming from the hernia. I'm not feeling the hernia, but they, they're they going to fix it since it's there. Um, and so, yeah, it's been... Uh, it's been a little rough just because, you know, fighting is very, there's a lot of highs and there's a lot of lows. Um, and, you know, being injured is something that's always been rough when you, when you're sidelined and you can't do what you want to do. So, um, but luckily these aren't like injuries that are going to keep me out for six months, nine months or anything like that. 
So I'm hoping by December I'm back in the gym. Uh, sounds like a pretty good timetable and uh, can get a fight, you know, early next year. So I'm hoping to get back in there in February or March if, if everything goes right and my recovery goes well. Brilliant. Well, you mentioned about some people that you were excited to fight. So just before we go to the closing questions, you heal up. And it's funny, you talk about the hernia groin. I was told I had a hernia. Well, I thought I had a hernia when I was a firefighter and turned out it was a groin tear. So I actually know exactly what you're talking about. Um, but uh, so now you, you're, you're healed up, you're done in rehab, your hernia is fixed. Who are the people that you want to try and um, use as rungs on that ladder to get to that title? Um, I think guys that there's certain guys that just excite me when I watch them fight and how they fight. And I'm like, Oh, I think we would have a really good fight. You know, um, uh, Adrian Yanez, who just actually lost to, uh, Jonathan Martinez. Um, fun guy to watch fight. Uh, John, Jonathan Martinez, uh, and his teammate, Chris Gutierrez, two guys out of factory X who are just throttling people with leg kicks right now. Uh, Jonathan Martinez was the, only the second fighter in UFC history to finish multiple opponents with leg kicks. Um, he just did it to Adrian Yanez last couple weeks ago or last week. Um, so I'm really looking at the bottom of that top 15 or guys that are right outside the top 15. Um, and you know, that's who I want to test myself against. And if I can pick up some solid wins and I think step number one is to get a number next to your name, right? That's the way it goes. So you got to do that. And then, uh, see how far we can climb up the ladder after that. But, um, yeah, you know, they're just, for me, it's like, I like watching guys that have certain guys and their styles. And I'm like, Oh, I think that certain fights are excite me more than other fights, you know, and it's just the style of the guy. Uh, I like challenges. I like to be the underdog. Uh, when I fight, I want people to generally genuine, like generally I want, I like when people doubt me and, and say, Oh, he's going to lose. He's a, a plus 150, a plus 200, and, and he's going to lose. So those are the kind of uh, challenges that kind of excite me. I, I've always underperformed when I'm the favorite. I just don't like the being the favorite. I like being, I like being doubted. I don't know. There's something about that that gives me, gives me some sort of satisfaction when I'm, when I win. And so, um, yeah, the guys that I'm supposed to lose to, that's who I want to fight. <laughs> Well, just one one quick uh, tangent. You mentioned that you train at the pit now. Um, what took you to that particular, you know, group? I know obviously it was made somewhat famous by you know, several fighters, including Tim Kennedy, Kennedy, but obviously Chuck, who was on the show. But now we're in 2023. You, you mentioned about having the Brazilian gym. You're going to boxing gym. You're going to Muay Thai. What was it that took you to John's gym specifically? Um, my father-in-law moved out here. Um. He's a retired teacher and uh, he bought like the, the house. I was just, you know, tore up to pieces back in 08, you know, during the re recession, the housing crisis and real estate plummeted. And he had the resources to buy this house that needed a complete remodel and facelift. And uh, his best friend is a contractor in Bakersfield, California. And, uh, so his best friend did the work. I'm sure, I mean, I'm sure he paid for it, but he probably got a nice discount. Um, and so he, we would come and visit him all the time. And here in the central coast, we were living about three hours East in the central Valley. Um, and, uh, so we'd always come and visit him and I would train at the pit. If I was getting ready for a fight or something, I would just stop in for a session on a Saturday if we were coming here to visit her dad or anything. And so I was kind of already knew the guys at the pit. 
and um, we're just friendly with them and would train with them when I was around. And uh, we always talked about moving over here and uh, real estate's kind of ridiculous over here. Uh, I mean, it's not as bad as it is in LA or San Francisco, but it's right below that. You know, it's still, you know, in the central Valley of California, I can, as a teacher and my wife's a nurse. So, you know, we're upper middle class in the central Valley. Uh, whereas here on the central coast, we're, we're the bottom of the ring, you know, like and trying to afford real estate is the challenge. Um, especially right now it's the challenge. So we're just trying to be patient. And, uh, I don't know. I just, uh, I had an opportunity to move over here during COVID actually in 2020. Uh, I applied for a job at a high school teaching AP courses and which is a pretty niche market, you know, like there's not a lot of people who you don't necessarily have a huge comp, a ton of competition. People that want to teach those courses because they don't get paid anymore, but you definitely do a lot more work, you know? Um, so you really got to love the subject. That's how I, why I like to do it. And uh, anyway, long story short, uh, we took the leap of faith. I was really just getting tired of Visalia and, and that's where I grew up, you know, and I bought a house uh, about a block away from the house I grew up in. And, uh, the neighborhood had changed a lot and safety was a concern for my kids. Um, a lot of gang stuff going on in Visalia these days. And, uh, I still love Visalia and I still have so many good friends and good relationships with businesses in Visalia and people, um, and in the education department and the schools. But I know we had an opportunity to move over here and, uh, to me, it was a new challenge, you know, like a lot of a lot of people told me don't do it you know that it's too expensive to live off of a teacher's salary there and there's no way you're going to be able to make it work and and for me that again it's kind of the same mentality i have with fighting it's like oh i have a challenge you know and i've got to figure it out and so that's what i've been doing the last three years uh people have always always asking me why are you still teaching why don't you just fight full time and you know you're probably making more money doing that than you are teaching and that is that is true. But, um, for me, the fighting money, any money I make from fighting is just going away to save for a house. And so I don't want to live off the money. I want to keep my teaching job and it does make for a, a very busy life. Uh, and you have to make sacrifices. My wife has to make sacrifices to make it happen. Um, but as long as I'm getting my four or five hours in the gym every day, just like the guys that are doing it full time. Um, I don't see it as a disadvantage. So that's the way I, I operate. And again, well, you know, maybe next year if I win a couple of fights and we're like, maybe I need to step away from teaching for a year and focus on this full time. And maybe I'll make that decision. But as of right now, I'm, I'm fine doing, doing both and just trying to make it work. And, uh, yeah, so that's kind of where I'm at. Beautiful. Well, I want to be mindful with your time. So I'm just going to throw some quick closing questions at you so I can let you get back to your daughters. The first one I love to ask, is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of in like to dystopian literature, like, you know, George like Orwell or um, I got into like, uh, I took a lot of lit classes for all you. It was like a book club, you know, you read 10 books in a semester and you talk about them and in class and uh, I took like American literature and world literature. We were getting exposed to different books from different places. Um, so there's a lot of interesting books I've read in those classes that have, you know, led me down different paths and, and, and exploring different literature. Um, 
I really like like existentialism, like the, the a lot of the books like from Camus and some of these guys that the stranger comes to mind. Uh, and then uh, there's an American author named Bukowski. You've ever, I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Um, Charles Bukowski. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, I have. Yes, I have. Of course I have. Yeah. Yeah. He's a, an, a dirty old man. And uh, <laughs> that's literally he was kind of disfigured. And um, he didn't start making money in writing until later in his life. And uh, he's got some great books. Um, kind of, you know, rated R for sure. But uh, I've always enjoyed his writing style and, and some of the concepts he talks about um, have always resonated with me. So he's one of my main go-to authors and I'll reread some of his stuff from time to time as well. So, Brilliant. What about movies and or documentaries? Ooh. I, I can't say I watch a ton of movies anymore. You know, maybe one or two a month I watch. Um, but, and then I forget, I always forget them, you know? Um, my all time favorite movie is the big Lebowski. Uh, I just, uh, the whole concept around the dude and, uh, his kind of philosophy on life. I just always found it really funny and fun. Um, and so I'm a big, big Lebowski fan. There's even a religion based around the movie, um, that exists. I've been told. Um, so we used to have, uh, big Lebowski parties where, uh, you all we served was white Russians and you had to wear a robe to the party. Um, (laughs) So uh, that's one of my all-time favorites. And then I'm, I kind of grew up on old Westerns. And then that's what I wrote my senior thesis on, uh, was on how how um, accurate were Westerns in telling the story of the West. Uh, and so I took 10 of the most famous Western movies and I critiqued them based on their historical accuracy. Um, and so I've always been into Westerns and they don't make them quite like they used to anymore, but, uh, uh, yeah, anything, any of the, any of the wild West kind of genre, uh, is something I've always kind of gravitated toward as well. What was your takeaway from that, that thesis? How close were they? Oh, uh, they weren't very close at all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah, there's, uh, there's some accuracies, uh, there's some things that are accurate and there's a, a lot of things that are, uh, or not so uh yeah the the gunfights the crazy gunfights in the old west movies uh when you learn about what their gunfights really were like um were a lot different uh those those guns did not shoot very straight so they would literally be standing feet from each other missing each other time and time again uh because the the guns were so inaccurate so uh yeah some of that stuff even though i love it because that's what draws people into the Westerns uh, as far as their historical accuracy. Uh, I get why they, they change some things, but uh, they're not necessarily the most historically accurate. No, I don't think the native Americans were white dudes with face paint either. No. <laughs> In real life. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> old racist Hollywood from back then. <laughs> 100%. All right. Well then the next question, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? That's a good question. Who would I recommend to have on the podcast? Who's somebody that I think would have a good story to tell and a good message. Hmm. 
I would probably recommend um, my jujitsu coach, Justin Frazier. Um, he uh, he's a teacher. He teaches at a at a continuation school in Santa Maria, which is a really rough area. Um, and he teaches at the continuation school, so he teaches at the rough school in the rough area. So it's 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 a rough thing he does, but he's the he, he's their department chair. And he does a lot of cool things with those kids. And um, he's also just a phenomenal grappler. And he's not a guy who anybody knows. Like, he's never, you know, he wrestled at Cal Poly. And uh, he actually has a background in gymnastics uh, before he wrestled. And that's an interesting, that's something I think I'm going to, my brother's doing. And I'm going to be doing with my son and, and my daughter's do gymnastics. I don't know if they're going to get into wrestling, but if my son chooses to get into wrestling, I, I'm going to have him in gymnastics. Um, but, uh, he just has a, he's a phenomenal grappler and, uh, he kind of grew up wrestling with Tim Kennedy and Jake Shields and, uh, Chuck Liddell, obviously, but that was the gen that's his generation of guys, um, that he, that he learned with. And so, uh, he's not, he never pursued mixed martial arts. He, he, he and he's not much of a striker, but, if he gets a hold of you, uh, you feel you you feel the, that there you understand that there are levels to this, and he's uh, always a, a couple steps ahead of you on the chessboard, so to speak. And he's just a phenomenal grappler and a great guy. Um, he's definitely on the spectrum somewhere. Uh, he's very neurotic at times, and his personality is, you know, can be challenging at times but uh i just think he's a phenomenal person and uh yeah i think he's one of those guys in the sport of mixed martial arts that doesn't get a lot of recognition or not a lot of people know who he is but you know go ask tim kennedy about him go ask jake shields about him i bet they would have a story or two to tell um because he is a phenomenal grappler so uh he would be an interesting guy uh and he just has an interesting take he's from the east coast actually um but uh yeah just an interesting guy and a good conver always a good conversation Beautiful. Well, I'd love to make that happen if you can help. Yeah, for sure. He would He would love that, I'm sure. Excellent. All right. Well, then the very last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you, what do you do to decompress? Um, well, I walk my dog. <laughs> that's, that's, I feel like that's become my decompressing thing at the end of the day is I'll leave my phone at home and I just walk my very old dog who's unfortunately our walks are getting shorter because he get, he peters out pretty quick and uh he's been with me since he was a pup and he's he's on we're hoping to get another year or so with him but we'll see um that's probably my biggest decompressing thing is is walking my dog and uh yeah i think that's kind of my nightly ritual to kind of just give me 10 or 15 minutes to just think and, and walk in, in silence, you know? And so, uh, that's probably the one I go to the most. Mine is exactly the same. I literally leave my really? phone at home. I got a, I had a, sadly, I lost my German shepherd last year, but she was 10 and a half, but, and they, they got, they got shorter and shorter and she got slower and slower to the point where one kid almost ran us over and I ran through a hedge to chase him and she, she couldn't even keep up. So he got away, but anyway, that's another story. But, um, but yeah, it is, it's just beautiful. Cause you just can't think, you know, you just walk in with them and you know, you've got no distractions and, and they pick up on your energy too. So yeah, it's, it's amazing. All right. Well then for people listening, where are the best places to find you online or on social media? 
Um, I'm on Twitter and Instagram, and it's just uh, the Renegade five five nine. The Renegade's my name, my nickname, or whatever in in the cage. So, um, the Renegade five five nine. I'm on Instagram and t- uh, Twitter. I do have a TikTok, but I don't know how to use it. So I wouldn't recommend going there. I don't really use it or understand why people are so into it. But uh, my manager told me you should probably have a TikTok. So I made one. But yeah, I'm not the most active on that thing. So Twitter, I like uh, to keep up on politics and stuff like that in the world. And uh, sometimes I'll have interesting conversations with people on there. Um, But Instagram to me is still all this social media stuff. I'm a little bit weary of. And, uh, you know, I like, I like having a photo photo library to put pictures of my kids. But I think when, uh, the fighting's done, I think my social media days will probably be done as well. So I am pretty active on there though. Um, I try to be at least, um, to interact with people and, and connect with people. So, and to keep people updated on, what I'm up to with the fighting stuff uh, it seems to be what people are interested in. So, um, but really it's just a place for me to put photos of my children. So <laughs> beautiful. Yeah. I think you can curate your feed to be pretty amazing. And you know, I, mine's, mine's a lot of, you know, obviously training videos, fight videos, but also a lot of positive stuff, whether it's, you know, the regular world, but it's first responder professions. So, you know, the only thing you just got to be careful not to click on anything that you shouldn't click on. I mean, by anything slightly clickbaity, divisive, then, then it will just send you down a terrible path. But it, it can be a really good place to to see stuff that you wouldn't see on the news. You know what I mean? The real feel good stories. So. Well, yeah. Cody, I want to say thank you so much. It's been an amazing conversation um, to really learn about the human behind the, you know, the fire in one side of the cage. Um, so I want to thank Matt again, but more importantly, I want to thank you for being so generous with your time, spending some time away from your family and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great talking to you and uh, keep doing keep doing what you guys are doing. It's, uh, I'm, you you got If nothing else came out of this interview, you've got a, a new listener, so big fan so thank you